electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Nothing hurts worse than uncertainty. Witness today's brutal beatdown with the Dow Jones average plunging 392 points. S&P plumbing 1.16%. And the Nasdaq losing half a percent. We've got uncertainty in Italy, a country with the third largest bond market in the world, no government. We've got uncertainty in Spain, where the prime minister faces a vote of no confidence later this week. Argentina has sky-high interest rates, as does Turkey. Brazil has a trucker strike that's looking like he can grind the economy to a halt. So what happens here? Our markets get crushed, and everyone acts like it's the end of the world. Yet, you know what? You could argue, and I am going to argue tonight, that this stuff is good. It's good for most American companies because it pushes down our interest rates. In fact, I think this European turmoil is absolutely positive for the United States. Yes, you heard me. Positive. Doesn't matter. We get slammed anyway. Could happen again tomorrow. Why is that? First, it is true that the market does indeed hate uncertainty, even if it could end positively for us. These are all events that inspire uncertainty, and you're never, ever going to rally on that kind of thing when it first happens. Second, there are many people who still think that a crisis over there, wherever there is, will eventually mean a crisis here. The 1994 tequila uh, crisis, that Mexican peso crash, uh, which in retrospect was nothing more than a small correction, still hurt our markets. We had some doozy crises like the Asian contagion in 97, Russian contagion in 98. More recently, we've had tons of European crises, Greece, Cyprus, Portugal. Portugal, Spain, Ireland, Italy, over and over again. Greece. Each one provoked pure fear in this country as we wondered how our banks would fare and which ones would go under. Third, we were up a lot this year and plenty of, in the last couple of years, and uh, uh, really plenty of investors are looking for any excuse to take some profits. Sell, sell, sell. 
An international crisis makes for a great excuse, even as I doubt the Italian situation will have much of an impact on our economy at all. In fact, I think you should use this weakness as a buying opportunity. More on that later. Still, I totally respect the decline and caution at the beginning of the day that this sell-off could have legs, as there are always people who react to fear with fear itself. They'll turn sellers tomorrow, which might be a better opportunity to buy. But why am I so confident that this European-inspired panic will ultimately turn out to be a buying opportunity? If not now, then definitely once it settles. First, all this negativity and fear is causing our interest rates to go down and down fast. Not up, but down fast. Hey, by the way, last I look, that's positive. Last week when I saw that oil could go down hard, I predicted that the yield in the 10-year would sink to 2.75%. We are almost there. That would ultimately be terrific for most of the stock market, emphasis on ultimately. However, I also said that initially we're going to be in a heads the bears win, tails the bulls lose situation because the whole rising interest rate scenario was not the reason the stock market got hit in the first place. It was the incipient trade war with China that made for an uncomfortable time for the bulls. Remember, the Chinese market is a huge source of growth for many American companies, so their stocks had to come down earlier this year when the trade hostilities commenced. But look, the bears cannot have it both ways, people. They've been spreading panic for months about rising interest rates. Now those rates are falling hard, and that's a good thing. They can't spread panic about that, too, but they tried and they succeeded. Lower rates can reignite the housing market, which had a very bad April and a weak May. That's incredibly important because every aisle in Home Depot was doing poorly as well as Home Depot itself, according to some. The stock of Toll Brothers got hammered last week after reported ostensibly good numbers. Why? Well, mortgage rates. They could be done going higher for the moment. That's good. Housing is a big, visible group that had become truly mired in a bear market. What about the financials, though? Aren't they going to be hurt by the fact that the Fed might not be able to tighten as fast as possible? Uh, well, that's actually a more complicated question. It's a little subtle. There's some nuance here. The banks need higher rates to boost their earnings if the economy stays strong. However, if the Fed raises rates too aggressively, as some of the bulls seem to think they want, the economy will weaken and the banks will miss their numbers. It's not that the financials need rate hikes. They need measured rate hikes that won't torpedo the economy. Two different things. This hiatus ensures that we won't get a Fed-induced recession. How about the European banks? Don't we have to worry about the Italian banks or the Germans? Again, there's that uncertainty element, but I can assure you that the Italian government, in conjunction with the EU Central Bank, will save Unicredit, which is basically the only major bank in Italy. Uh, the rest of them are pretty much insolvent. Germany, it's a, it's a total club, and the club has way too many members in it who worked that or know people at Deutsche Bank to let Deutsche Bank go down the drain. The more likely scenario here is that our banks actually pick up more European business. This is already happening in New York, where J.P. Morgan has been a beneficiary of share donor Deutsche Bank's departure from key business lines here. It's all good news. And you're going to have to step up to the plate and buy the stock of J.P. Morgan as painful as it looks like, as painful as it is, and it obviously looks like it's headed 97, 98, more on that later. And U.S. companies that, that may be tempted to issue bonds overseas where the rates are lower and the issuance has better tax status, they're going to go to U.S. banks, not foreign banks, to do their business. That's great. Now, it gets even better. The truth is that our banks had to recapitalize a long time ago, and they're flush with capital. No other country insisted on forcing capital raises on their banks. None. No one, especially not Europe. So the only contagion will be European money flowing out of their countries to here 
Okay, even if we accept that European weakness can be a positive for the U.S., what about the oil crash? The bears are framing the 7% decline in oil as a fall off in demand, when it's clearly about a boost in supply from Russia and Saudi Arabia. Now, not only is that a decline, that decline in oil bullish, as we know that retail will benefit perhaps ever so slightly from lower gasoline prices, which are coming down rapidly. More importantly, the consumer packaged goods companies will benefit as plastic is one of their biggest raw costs, and it's made from petroleum. Suddenly, the consumer packaged goods stocks are getting a double boost. Lower raw costs, and their yields look more competitive versus treasuries. Something they'll be more, even more pronounced if we get a weak number on Friday for the employment. I'm sure the bears out there will say, well, how about the dollar, Jim? You're overlooking that. Sure, a strong dollar's bad for some of these companies. No disagreement here. But honestly, the dollar feels like a side issue to me. When it was going lower, it didn't nearly help as much as I thought it would. And the bears were trying to say, ooh, don't believe the earnings. And the bears kind of succeeded in that narrative. They can't have it both ways again. The real problem for this industry has been rising raw costs, and the decline in oil helps alleviate that issue. I like Clorox here, as it has much less exposure to overseas markets than its competitors, so you don't have to worry about the dollar unless you, if you care about it. I want you to consider PepsiCo, which is taking radical action to reignite declining product lines while buying brands that millennials adore. PepsiCo's a buy. Plus, the sellers of the S&P 500 today will be the buyers of the small and mid-caps tomorrow. They raised the capital. Now they're going to put that money to work. Now, they don't know. The small mitts guys, okay, they don't know the difference between the parties vying for control of Italy. They, they don't know that Italy has no mortgage market, no functioning government, and an 11% unemployment rate. If anyone needs a new government, it's them. But more importantly, none of this matters to American companies that don't do any business in Europe. But we forgot about those today, didn't we? Finally, things are just incredibly strong for many U.S. companies worldwide, like the numbers we saw irrefutably from Salesforce tonight. And that's not a small company. That's a big company. They were stupendous. And lower interest rates just makes you want to pay even more for those same earnings. Bottom line, anything that gives us lower rates, lower inflation, more powerful bags, lower oil prices, lower gasoline prices, more purchasing power for homes and cars is something that is uh, bad. No, good. We just have to wait until the sellers come to their senses and realize that sometimes uncertainty can indeed lead to good outcomes. There, I said it. Nobody else did. Come after me. Be my guest. I live right here. Jerry in Utah. Jerry. Booyah, Jim. With summer vacations coming up, what do you think of me buying some shares of Southwest Airlines? It is time. Gary Kelly's going to get it together. Oil's coming down. I wanted to recommend it. Tried to. It's in the bullpen for ActionLearnersPlus.com. Club members. I should have pulled the trigger today. Chris in Indiana. Chris. Booyah. Booyah. I'm a first-time caller and a long-time viewer. If the workers at MGM Casino in Las Vegas go on strike, how will that affect the market, and will MGM be a good buy? MGM is a good buy, but I got to tell you, candidly, this win... Wow. I mean, something's going on there. This thing goes up every single day, and I don't know why it is, but MGM is very, very good. Okay, sure, uncertainty is scary, Ooh. but sometimes it leads to good outcomes. Uh, it, this is something that I know because I've been doing this for like like 40 years. All right, anyway, now we just got to wait out the sellers, and maybe they'll come to their senses eventually. On Mad Money Tonight, crisis in the tape uh, today, but do I dare refute? I'm going to tell you why I disagree with the sell-off throughout this whole whole show. And Salesforce's goal of reaching $21 to $23 billion in revenues by fiscal year 2022 just got more realistic. I'm digging into the record quarter with the one and only Mark Benioff. And oil's not well after hitting a three-year high. The hot commodity's back on a decline. Which direction do you trust and what does it mean? I'm going off the charts, so stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. 
Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Here's the big issue with contagion stories. They don't end quickly. Every time there's a new headline, someone says, I can't take it anymore, and sells our market. Sell, sell, sell. Especially our financials, just as they did today. Doesn't matter what's really going on at the epicenter of the contagion, whether we're talking about Spain, Ireland, Greece, Cyprus, and now Italy. They can't take the pain. The house of pain. Now, there was a time when the big banks of the world were on shakier footing and far more intertwined than they are today. Back then, these contagion stories had some gravitas. That's no longer the case. These are reasons to buy our banks, not to sell them. But try telling that to the sellers who panicked today. In the old days, it made sense uh, for the U.S. market to go down off of an Italian financial crisis. Seven years ago, we had a similar situation in Italy. At the time, the European Central Bank was raising interest rates to fight non-existent inflation, when the real illness was deflation. Jean-Claude Trichet, the now disgraced central bank chief, raised interest rates twice right into the teeth of recession. Jean-Claude Van Damme would have been a better central banker. On November 9, 2011, the Italian tenure hit 7.48 as their government broke down. Sound familiar? The turmoil caused buyers to avoid new Italian bond issues. Sound familiar? Worrisome is Italy's the third largest bank. Get used to hearing that because it's meant to freak you out. The spillover was instant. The Dow plunged 389 points from 12,170 to 11,781 in a move that was as catastrophic as it was ridiculous. I say ridiculous because in retrospect, there was no impact whatsoever. A new central banker, Mario Draghi, took over the ECB and started his bond buying program, which made the Italian bond market among the greatest single investments in history, right when almost every expert was telling us it would collapse. The carnage before Draghi's appointment was predictably concentrated in individual financials all over the globe. But let's just stick to a home with this uh, oldie but goodie. A JP Morgan stock dropped from 35 to 32 on that big down day, and before rallying a bit, and then finishing November of 2011 at $28. Turns out, get this, 28 bucks, right? Do you know what was the last big buying opportunity before the stock quadrupled? Can you imagine a quadruple? This faux European scare sends the world's premier financial down hard, and then you get an inconceivably magnificent run in a big cap bank stock. I'm sure right now there are people saying, whoa, scary. I'm going to sell J.P. Morgan down to 100 uh, because there's someone who's going to want to sell it at 98. And the guy who's selling at 98 says, I got to get for 97. No, I would just let me tell you something. It's very akin to 35 to 28, even as what they should have been thinking about was buying it at 28 and then enjoying it to 119. That's how it works in real world, but not how it works in emotion world. The panic comes first. I am sure at 103, we get stories about Deutsche Bank about ready to collapse and uh, you shouldn't be uh, aggressive with the bank stocks. I want you to buy into that decline, which is what I told members of the ActionOrangePlus.com club this very day. Why does this happen? Part of it comes down to the mentality of whoever shoots first wins. Nobody wants, uh, likes to say, uh, you know, listen, I'm not going to shoot. Look, we'd all love to hear if nobody shoots, nobody gets hurt. 
but some hedge funds sense short opportunities, while others don't like the action in the XLF. That's the ETF. And still others say that Europe will delay rate hikes so the bank's net interest margins won't go higher. Plus, you have a whole contingent of people who genuinely believe that our banks are still on the hook to European banks, even though it's simply not the case. Remember when Society General was supposed to bring down Morgan Stanley? What a buying opportunity that was, 11 bucks. Now, as I mentioned at the top, European turmoil is actually good for our banks. Italy itself is underbanked. There's no mortgage market. Wealthy Italians would much rather have their money in our banks than Unicredit, which is the only truly solvent entity in the entire country. And let's be honest, there are good reasons for Italy's political instability. They have an incompetent and stifling bureaucracy, not to mention 11% unemployment. The regulations are beyond confounding. They're crazy. And it's incredibly difficult to do business there without running afoul of the authorities. The whole system seems almost designed to extort kickbacks. That's why these crises seem to last forever. Too many moving parts. Put it all together. Uh, combined with the prospect of a bizarre government coming in, a strange fusion of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, and you can see why people are freaked out. But look, the last time Italy caused a gigantic sell-off in 2011, I was on a panel in Michigan asking the Republican presidential candidates what they'd do about the European debt crisis, particularly Italy, to a person the candidates said the Europeans would handle it. Playing the journalist skeptic, I scoffed at their lack of knowledge. Yet they were right. It didn't matter. So if we keep getting slammed by Italy... And we'll just get better and better buying opportunities in things like J.P. Morgan. Ooh, scary at 103. Really scary at 100. Got to avoid at 98. Next stop, how about 200? All right, much more mad money ahead. Oil, oil, double in trouble. I'm going off the charts on the spell that's been cast on black gold. And on a day like today, it's time to fall back on powerful themes. I'm going one-on-one with the visionary CEO of Salesforce to talk about still one more record, unbelievable, broken record quarter. Then, time to talk trash. I'm sitting with the CEO of Covanta. Get the latest from the industry. So stick with Kramer. Price of oil plummeting down to 66 bucks off the news late last week that Saudi Arabia and Russia are making plans to potentially boost their output. Where could this all important commodity be headed? Given the monster run in crude over the past month, I mean, I think we need to go off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's that brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodities Trading. And, commodity trading. and by the way, she is a chartist with a very good record when it comes to, pre- to predicting the price of oil. So what's Garner's view? In a nutshell, she thinks a breakdown to $55 is a lot more likely from these levels than, say, a breakout up to 80. Let's remember how oil ended up crossing the $70 threshold not that long ago in the first place. A lot of things had to happen to make that move possible. You had OPEC cutting production, the collapse of Venezuela, the Iranian sanctions renewed by President Trump. As Garner sees it, all these issues amounted to a perfect storm that helped propel the price of crude over 70 bucks. But to her, these levels represented irrational exuberance, which makes today's sell-off totally justifiable as well as last week's. As far as she's concerned, the idea of oil going to 80 is about as likely as, say, a hockey team from the desert winning the Stanley Cup in their inaugural season. Of course, the fact that the Golden Knights just won the first game of the finals serves as a reminder that nothing is impossible, especially when, like Garner, from Vegas, you're a huge GK fan. Okay, so still, there are a ton of reasons to believe that oil deserves to go lower. For starters, in the U.S., our producers have been ramping up the drilling pretty aggressively. According to the latest Baker Hughes rig count, we currently have 1,059 oil rigs up and running in this country. That is dramatically up from, say, early 2016, 
when we only had 316 rigs online. And while it's down substantially uh, compared to the 2016 high of 1,595 rigs, it's definitely enough to give us some significant production growth. Let's drill down. Let's look at the charts. Let's start with a weekly chart of West Texas Intermediate Crude, which contains the CFTC's commitments of trader support or a COT report. Remember, every week the CFTC releases data that tells you what large speculators, meaning money managers, small speculators, and commercial hedgers are doing with their futures positions. Garner views this as a terrific way to measure the overall level of panic or complacency in the futures market. Now, for months, she's been concerned that large speculators... Green, okay. Large speculators are way too bullish. Historically, the oil futures market is like a seesaw. Traders cut into one side of the trade, and when it gets overloaded, they flee to the other side on mass. While the recent pullback has lightened up the bullish side of the equation a bit, Garner still thinks that the oil futures market is very heavily overweighted to the long side. In her view, that kind of thing inevitably leads to a big liquidation. And you can see, see, it's look at it. All the way up there, okay? Of course, that doesn't mean that we'll get a liquidation immediately. A trade can stay overcrowded for a very long time, as we've seen this year. However, Garner notes that when you have too many bulls, it does tend to keep a lid on rallies. For example, when we checked in with her in January, all right, so we go back to January, she uh, told us she was concerned about this dynamic. Since then, oils rallied from the mid-60s to the low-70s and went much further than than we thought here. Uh, But here we are at the end of May, and it's come right back down to the mid-60s. Part of the reason, when nearly everyone is bullish, it's very hard to drum up new buyers. Everyone's already in the pool. Now, according to the Commitment of Traders report, there are roughly 634,000 net long positions held by large speculators, the big boys. Despite the recent selling, this is not that far from the all-time high of 740,000, and it's much, much higher than the 2016 low of, and you can take a look, it's all the way back here, 2016 low of 150,000. What does that mean? Garner says that if some part of the fundamental picture deteriorates, we could really get hammered here. Not what we've seen yet, but really hammered. And the decline in recent days could be just the beginning. Can you imagine? With that in mind, check out this weekly chart of West Texas Intermediate Crude. Garner points out that while the recent pullback in oil has been swift, it has yet to do any technical damage, as oil is still holding above its floor of support at 60 floor support, okay? Nevertheless, when you look at the momentum indicators like the Relative Strength Index, the RSI, or the Williams Percentage R Oscillator, they're both, well, let's just say rolling over here after peaking at extremely overbought levels. So what's happened to oil when the Relative Strength Strength Index has fallen hard from overbought readings in the past? Garner notes that on three of the last four occasions, this has triggered declines of $12 or more in oil. (laughs) Look at this one. Holy cow. The only exception was in February. When we didn't, uh, we had a $9 breakdown that was swiftly followed by a rebound. In other words, if that pattern holds, oil could easily break down through a $65 floor and fall to 60 Given that the RSI and Williams percentage R oscillator are still in the middle of the channel, see, in other words, they're not down here where we feel like there might be a bounce, uh, that's very far from an oversold reading. Well, you would suggest that oil is due for a bounce at an oversold reading, but not where it is here. Garner believes the crude has more room to decline, maybe to there, to there, which would then add up to something like that, okay, which uh, obviously would be a lot worse than that. If oil holds at 60 bucks, she says she'd be relatively neutral. However, she does think that there's a decent chance we could see a quick probe down toward 55, another powerful floor of support. You can see he's different levels of support here. Uh, less likely oil could break down to the 40s. 
lower it goes, Garner will like it and recommend purchase, but it's got to go there first. But what if she's wrong? If oil holds at the $65 floor, then Garner thinks the rally could resume and it might climb all the way up to 75. That's, eh, but still, think about it. That's a pretty lousy risk reward, isn't it? Nine up and 20 down. Finally, one more weekly chart that makes Garner feel real uneasy and queasy. This is crude oil versus the U.S. dollar. As you can see in recent months, until the pullback over the last few days, oil and the dollar were moving in the same direction. Kind of crazy. Gardner says it can't last. Remember, oil's pricing dollars all over the world. So when the greenback goes up, all right, the greenback, the red, goes up, then oil should go down. That's the correct correlation right here. Now, oil's begun to do just that, but Gardner believes this process won't be complete until it falls back to the low 60s. So just from this messed up relationship with the dollar, we should have more downside. Bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Carly Garner, they suggested today's weakness in oil is not the end, people. She's saying more pain. I think we've got to take her seriously. She's been too right to ignore. Let's go to Joseph in California, please. Joseph. Hi, Jimmy. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. And thanks for thanks for all the wisdom you give us, average Joes. Well, that's your try. Thank you, man. Hey, hey I was wondering on uh, California Resources, CRC. They've had a good run. Is there still room to run, or is it time to take the money and run? My inclination is to take the money and run. That is not a great company. It has done well. I remember when it was the spinoff that was the flavor of the month, and then it collapsed. I think you should take it off the table and be glad you got the game, Jack, in Ohio. Jack. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Jimmy. Of course. Hey, uh, Dominium Energy D. Hey, they've been hovering around the uh, 52-week low now for a while. Yes. I read somewhere they're going to raise their dividends consistent for the next four or five years. Add to my holdings or pass. I would add, now remember, they're making a very difficult acquisition. They also weren't able to sell a lot of a drop, what's known as a drop-down mass limited partnership. But you're buying at a 5%. I don't think there's a lot of downside here. It's one of the most, I'd say, one of the most best-run utilities in the country. Tom Farrell, 5%. Bye, bye, bye. All right. The chart suggests this weakness in oil could continue. I don't trust it, okay? I don't. Tonight's chart has got a terrific track record, so I would take it very seriously. Now, still ahead, Salesforce is much more than just a tech company. I'm talking to Mark Benioff after a just, I mean, a quintessential blowout quarter and a fantastic, fantastic view forward about what's going to happen. Uh, this company's changing the world. Then, is one man's trash your treasure? I'm digging into Covanta's business. Find out if it can make you a winner. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. On a hideous day like today, when everybody's freaking out about Italy and newfound fears of a Eurozone breakup, you need to fall back on powerful long-term themes that will keep plowing forward regardless of any geopolitical turbulence. Themes like cloud computing. And the king of the cloud is Salesforce, which reported one of the best quarters I've ever seen tonight. Sharply higher than expected revenues. Billies and earnings. So let's check in with Mark Benioff, the visionary co-founder, chairman, CEO of Salesforce. Learn more about the quarter and where his company is headed. Mr. Benioff, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, how are you? Great to see you. Well, Mark, I'm always good when I see that you're the fastest enterprise software company to 10 billion, but you're now projected fastest to 20 billion. What gives you that <laughs> level of confidence that fiscal year 22 will produce north of 20 billion? 
Well, you can see, Jim, we had a fantastic quarter, and we are raising our guidance to $13.125 billion for this year, up from $10.5 billion last year. And you can see we are fast-tracking to $20 billion. That's crystal clear. All right, total first quarter revenue was three point north of three billion, which I think is pretty impressive. Twenty five percent year over year. How much of it is just new large clients that we can do some talking about? Well, we can really see what's happening in the market today is a huge investment uh, by our customers. The economy is really ripping, and you can see that customers are going through this massive digital transformation, and every digital transformation starts and ends with the customer. So we saw diversified success across all of the industries that we work in, Jim. And a great example, that would be Caring Group. Everybody knows Gucci. Everybody knows Yves Saint Laurent. Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody knows Bottega Veneta. Well, of course, they need to connect with their customers in a whole new way. And they're going to do that through Salesforce and sales and service and marketing and in every capacity that you need to connect with the customer, you can now do that with our Salesforce customer success platform. And that's a great example of uh, retail going online. A another huge example would be the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Of course, they're working to make ranchers and farmers more successful than ever, and they have to connect with them in a whole new way as well. That's been another huge win for us uh, in the quarter. And, and we had so many other great examples too. Another one that you know so well would be Marriott, who's building a complete digital transformation in the loyalty experience with their customers, and it's being guided by Salesforce's platform. Well, one that we've been recommending forever that I was surprised that you were in, big millennial play, because people, millennials want to look good and they want to feel good, is a line. <laughs> now, how the heck did you get to a line, which, we, you know, by the way, all-time high today, probably only a handful of stocks are doing that. Where, what's your connection there? Well, they're just a great company, and of course, they're automating orthodontists to be able to connect with their patients in a whole new way. And that's all about orthodontist success. And we're helping them to build that platform to allow their, their customers, their orthodontists, to connect to their consumers, their patients. And that's a huge opportunity for, for a line. Right now, we talk about trust. You always talk about trust in the customer. I thought it was very interesting in your recent acquisition of MuleSoft, I hope we get to that, that you gave a talk on May 9th. And in it, you talked about the idea that if you lose your way when it comes to trust or if trust becomes a byproduct, which may have been the case with Facebook, then you lose your way to be able to continue to grow as a company. Well, today I talked to so many CEOs and if I were to give them one piece of advice is there's no more, nothing more important than trust that you have with your customers, with your employees, with your partners, with all your key stakeholders. And that's a major transformation of business. And in today's world, you've got to have trust as your highest value. And when you lose trust with your customers, like what we saw with Facebook, well, then you've got to really work hard to build it back. And in that case, we you know, have a crisis of trust. We saw that last year here in San Francisco with Uber as well. Um, these are companies that go through incredible crisis because they have to reboot their values. It's better to start or to look at those values now before you get to that point of crisis. But you know, are feel, you focused on trust? But, is trust your highest value? But I did feel positive that you said, you know, Travis Kalanick is your friend, changed over to Dara, and you think that Dara is rebuilding that trust. I know Tony West is doing so, too. So you can make a comeback. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I totally think that all of these companies and these CEOs 
they could have a moment where they have to go, wow, you know, I was an entrepreneur. Now I'm a leader. I have right. to move. I have to transform. I have to evolve. I have to go forward. And that's an opportunity for every entrepreneur that they're not running a startup anymore. They're running a huge company that's so important to the future of our industry, our country, our world. And sometimes it's a little bit of a difficult switch that when they have to flip that to become trust as their highest value. All right, let's talk about metaphorical leadership. Uh, you open a new tower, uh, largest in San Francisco. You're using that not as a, uh, a point of edification about how great Salesforce is, but a point of edification about how much uh, needs to be done in San Francisco to make it a better city. How do you do, uh, say, your shareholders rationalize? Obviously, after a great quarter, you can do this. But as long as you're riding high, it's fine. How do you rationalize how much effort you're putting to helping the underclass while you're trying to do the great thing for uh, your shareholders? Well, this has really started from the first day Salesforce was started. We put 1% of our equity, our profit, and our time into a, into a foundation. And we said, as Salesforce scales and grows, well, we would get back at scale. It, it was very easy because we had no equity, profit, or time. But now Salesforce has, as you know, 13 billion in revenue this year and 30,000 employees, and you can see our incredible market capitalization. But Jim, the power of Salesforce is that that philanthropic model is scaling. So we'll do more than a million hours of volunteerism this year. We'll give away almost $50 million this year to, to those organizations that need it who are serving the homeless or especially here in San Francisco, our public schools in San Francisco and Oakland. And, and of course, not just that, we run over 30,000 nonprofits and NGOs for free. So while we have great customers like Align, Marriott, Caring, USDA and others, of course, so many nonprofits and US, so many nonprofits and NGOs also use our product, but they use it for free. The same product. Okay, now I see when I see this breakout number like today, I have to ask any, uh, how many eight-figure clients, uh, new ones, any nine-figure ones? Well, Jim, we just had a phenomenal growth in our largest customers. And I'll tell you right now, we talked about some of them, but I do see the largest customers getting bigger. And a great example of that is Citibank. It was a huge win for the quarter. And here's one of the largest banks doing even more on our platform, especially in Asia. Another example is Adidas. Adidas has been a market share winner in an incredibly important next generation marketplace of sneakers. And they're just crushing the competition using, using our platform. And um, I, I see that in so many examples of customers uh, in every industry that we're working with today. All right, one last question, because I've been uh, very heavily recommending not just the live, but what Michael Corbett's been doing at City. Does Michael just have a facility to know how to use Salesforce? People in his organization know. How is it happening? And I know Michael shares some of your values, uh, even if they may not necessarily produce uh, good revenue uh, when he says them. Well, he's a great CEO, and it's a great company. But when you look at what's going on as a huge transformation in the banking and financial services industry, it could be some of the largest insurance companies as well, you know, there's a higher demand for them to provide a great customer experience. That, that was true with Align. That's even true with the USDA, with those farmers. How do you transform that experience? And that's why they're turning to Salesforce. That's why you're seeing this growth. That's why you're seeing this great return of our equity over the last decade that we've been talking. 
because look, you have to connect with your customers in a whole new way. You have to build a 360 degree view of your customer. You have to know your customer like never before and customers can turn to Salesforce to do that. All right. Well, congratulations to Mark Benioff, Chairman CEO of Salesforce. Thank you. A monster that. big blowout. Jim, quarter. I hope you come to San Francisco. All we right. miss you. This was the this was a huge quarter. Okay, just a huge quarter to the point where you could turn around the Cloud Kings in tomorrow's session. They have money's back after the It is time. Step in the light of the and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate diamonds over the lightning round. Come myself with Derek in Pennsylvania. Derek. Hey, Jim, a big booyah to you. Great job on that convention speech, by the way, to you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Groupon, buy, sell, or hold with the Oh, Rich gift. Williams is doing an amazing job with Groupon. It's undervalued. I think it should be brought up to six. Go to Dave in New York. Dave. Hello, Jim Kramer. Great to be able to talk to you. Good to have you. Okay, great. I've been a long time. I've been listening to you for a long time. I look, always look forward to hearing your insight and commentary on the markets and individual stocks, especially on days like today. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my question for you tonight is about Cara Therapeutics. Um, last week, Cara announced that they will be signing a deal with Vifor Pharma Group, um, and this a deal will be providing Cara with fifty million in cash up front now, four seventy million, a uh, four hundred seventy yeah, million look, in future. Look, I saw the deal. Payments. The stock went up big and has come right back down, and the company's been a big disappointment, frankly. Now they may disagree with me, but I, I can call it as I see it. I thought there was more to it. I want to see more to it. Let's go to Margo in California, please, Margo. Hi, Tim. Hi. Uh, I'm an, hello. I'm an Action Alerts member, and I started a small position in Applied Materials. They had a disappointing quarter, yet due to recent strength in the sector, the stock price is on the rise. Can I trust this trend? And yes, I Mario, buy first of all, thanks for joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. I greatly appreciate it. You know, we do our monthly calls, trying to give as much information as possible. Gary Diggerson may be in line to get some of this display business that Apple's talking about. It's why OLED was up today. And I think it's been overly punished. Bye, bye, bye. Okay, let's go to Paul in Texas. Paul. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. My company is Watsco, W-S-O. I like the heating and air conditioning, and I like the yield. This is one that my friend writing partner, Matt Horwitz, has always pointed out to me. I think you buy it right here. Let's go to Austin in Texas. Austin. Hey, Jim. My stock's Adobe. I love the company, but it's near all-time highs. I know, but the fact is that Chantanoon Orion keeps delivering and delivering and delivering. That last acquisition was fantastic. I still like Adobe even up here. I need to go to Michael in Texas, please. Michael. Booyah, Jim. This is Michael from Houston. All right. Hey, my stock is Cracker Barrel, ticker symbol CBRL, and I'm just want to get your opinion. I like that special you. dividend they gave you. I know the quarter wasn't perfect, but a special dividend is fine by me. I'm not done. I'm going to Tom in Florida. Tom. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Um, beautiful village of Florida. There you go. What's up? Hey, what's going on with PPC, Pilgrim's Pride? No, no. We do not like commodity food. <laughs> commodity food is not our way. I want to go to Joseph in California. Joseph. Hey, big Northern California booyah to Jim. I like What's that. What's up with Berkshire Hathaway? 
Oh, man, the stock's been going down ever since that meeting. But you know what? That's your win. I think that's your win. I would pull the trigger tomorrow morning on that stock. Mary and Marilyn Mary. Yes, I watch your show for 20 years or more. I enjoy it very much every day. Thank you. Uh, Clovis Oncology, I bought it at 91. Uh, is it a good company? What do you think? It's completely speculative. It's losing a fortune. You have to hope that it gets some sort of bid or something. So I am going to say, don't buy, don't buy. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. morning, the New York Times ran a story that surprised a lot of people. Your recycling gets recycled, right? Maybe or maybe not. And the gist of this, we used to send tons and tons of our recyclables to China, but because of new anti-pollution regulations in the People's Republic, they don't want to import garbage anymore. Without that market, a lot of our recyclable paper and plastic is ending up in landfills. That's not great for the planet. But where others see problems, I see opportunities to help you try to make money, which brings me to Kavanta Holdings, CVA, a waste disposal company that has a huge waste-to-energy business. Every year, they convert about 20 million tons of trash into clean, renewable power, while also recycling roughly 550,000 tons of metal. Even if Kavanta doesn't take anything from the China garbage buildup, the very fact that we're practically swimming in trash here is good for their business. Now, the company just reported a strong quarter at the end of April, but the stock has struggled to gain traction. It's down about 5% year-to-date. So will it continue to languish, or could this stock turn out to be the proverbial trash-to-treasure asset? And by the way, it's got a very high yield. Let's take a closer look with Stephen Jones. He's the president and CEO of Covanta Holdings. Get a better sense of his company's prospects. Mr. Jones, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Thanks, sir. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate Thank you. Thank you for coming back. on. All right, first, you probably read that New York Times story. Yes, I uh, did. This is obviously is good news for your company, right? Yeah, it is. So um, China, in early 2018, put in something called the uh, policy called the uh, National Sword Program. And basically what they've said is they don't want to take contaminated plastics, recycled plastics and paper. And so if it's it's contaminated, they're rejecting it. And so that's caused a kind of backup in the in the recycling industry here in the U.S. So uh, but some of that like contaminated, for instance, you guys have a good business in medical waste. Right. So, I mean, I think you're probably ready to handle some of this bad plastic. So our preference is to have the recycling, recycled material get recycled. I'm sure you're at home religiously putting your plastic in the plastic bin, paper in the paper bin. So you'd like to have it recycled. Um, I think it's a shame, as you mentioned in the intro, for this to be be, being buried in the landfill. At a minimum, you should recover the BTU content that's in the plastic and paper. And so an energy from waste plant allows that to happen. You can recover those BTUs. Uh, Now, uh, uh, Mr. Fish from Waste Management has often said on our show that we're actually not great recyclers like some of other countries. Like I was subject to what the equivalent of a citizen's arrest because I put a a brown bottle in a green uh, trash can in Germany. I mean, can we ever get serious in this country or are you still okay? Uh, well, it's interesting. I think this this China National Sword Program is showing that we don't have some of the infrastructure here in the U.S. to handle our own plastics and paper that that was going to China. So roughly 70 percent of the exported plastics and paper were going to China, and that's largely shut off at this point. So what you're seeing is that, first off, the business model for someone like, like Jim, the business model is changing for recycling. Yes. And then secondly, uh, a lot of this recycled material needs a home and and. One of the homes it's finding is landfills, which is not, which I think a lot of people would be disappointed to hear. But people have to know that Covanta, uh, your principal source of revenue is the trash, not necessarily the energy. Right. So if you look at our 
um, our, rep, our revenue streams, uh, waste is 70% of our revenues in that neighborhood. Right. Um, and as we reported in the first quarter, uh, volumes were up about 6% on waste. And so, and that was before the China National Sword program really, really took major effect. So it's a good time to be in the waste industry, particularly if you're on the disposal side right. of, the, of the value chain. Now, uh, those of us in the New York area know that we, we passed this 91st Street Marine transfer mm-hmm. terminal. That's a big piece of business for you. Yeah, so we have one marine transfer station already online. That's the Queens Marine Transfer Station. Uh, The 91st Street, uh, we got the notice to proceed on that transfer station. And so we're in the process now of buying equipment. Uh, That'll start up about uh, Q1 of 2019. Okay, now uh, I have a a friend who's in an outfit called uh, Aero Aggregates, and they take green glass. Mm -hmm. um, And and they're using it to be able to make it so that it's fill for roads, much Mm -hmm. cheaper than aggregate. Are you... um, doing for various different entities? Are you sorting for them, or is, or is, is all your stuff uh, sorted and, and then uh, made into something else? So we take most of our materials post-recycling. Okay. Um, the area where we recycle is on metals, so there's a lot of metals that come through right. the waste stream. So we reclaim enough steel to build six new Golden Gate bridges every year. Wow. We reclaim three billion aluminum cans a year. So I'm not sure what's going on, but there must be a lot of beer drinking going on out there for three billion cans to come through the waste stream. <laughs> and we only take about 5% of the of the U.S.'s waste stream. So but you're still there's a lot big, of metal. I mean, you're, you're very large. Yeah. Now, last question. I know that uh, it has more to do with the stock price, but when I see a 6% yield. Some people say, well, wait a second, that can't be sustained. But you've got easily the cash flow to sustain that, that yield. So this year, we're uh, a little challenged on cash flows in that we entered into, we sold half of our Dublin waste energy facility. So, yeah, so we sold that to the Green Investment Group, who is now owned by Macquarie. That allowed us to deal with some issues. One issue we had talked about last time I was on, which was our leverage ratios were going up. So we were able to uh, bring our leverage ratios down by selling this 50% equity. But we did sell 50% of the EBITDA and 50% of the free cash flows. That's a short-term phenomenon. Uh, As we look out now with our partnership with the Green Investment Group, we're expecting to double free cash flow over the right. next five to seven years to about $250 million of free cash flow per year. Second. Okay, good. I feel better because I also know your same store sales going up, so mm-hmm. I'm not as concerned, but that's right. terrific. Okay, that's Stephen Jones. He's president and CEO of Cavanta Holdings, doing the right thing with our trash. Mad Money's back after the break. I want you to remember the example I gave of J.P. Morgan the last time we had one of these Italian bond crises in November of 2011. Stock fell, okay, 35 to 32, then to 28. You know what the next stop was? 119. How do you think the people feel who sold it at 32, at 30, at 28? I'll tell you how they felt. They felt relieved. They felt like it was a big steamer trunk. They were carrying it, and it went away, and they said, oh, I feel so good. But you know what they feel like now? Idiots, morons, and chowderheads. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Graber, and I'll see you tomorrow. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.